Someone once said, uh, to worship is to know who owns the house. And, uh, well, that's what uh, we did last week with our weekend of service. We worshiped. It was a weekend of of worship as we went out to so many different sites. And we uh, just displayed the love of Christ uh, for His glory. And and now uh, we're gathering here in corporate worship once again. And so... um, to worship is to know who owns the house. Um, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name is Randy. I'm the senior minister, and we're going to be uh, um, looking at a new series this morning, beginning um, in the letter of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find that on page 827 of your church Bibles. It's in the pouch in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word as your own, Please, uh, please take it, put your name on it. It's yours, it's our gift to you. We want you to have it. And we're going to hear what God has to say through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It's on page 827 of your church Bibles. It's also up on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word. I wonder if anyone here has ever uh, kept track of the number of messages you get 
in a single day. Starting with your mobile phone. I wonder how many phone calls do you get on your mobile home, uh, a mobile phone uh, in a typical day? Uh, or what about texts? Huh? How many texts do you get in a typical day? How many, how many would you get on, uh, you know, on Sunday? How many would you get during the pastor's sermon Sunday? What about emails? How many emails do you think you get in a typical day? Uh, and let's not leave out our social networking sites. How many messages do you receive there? And, and then let's get on uh, our browsing. And you lock onto a site and maybe see a, a place where you want to buy something. And then you go to another site, you know. And then all of a sudden, then the margin, mysteriously, where you were, that site is now an advertisement there. And you go, how did that happen? There's really smart people on earth. That's how that happened, right? And we haven't even checked the mailbox when we've gotten home. I mean, how, how many messages do you get in your mailbox? Uh, uh, just ranging from uh, junk flyers to, you know, uh, birthday cards to bills. and Oh, and what if we turned on the TV? What about those messages that come by way of your commercials? And, and I didn't forget the car, did I? And we're in the car. And how, many of you, how many of you saw a billboard as you came to church this morning? Or you turn on the radio and there's an advertisement, that, another message. And what about that person standing on the corner at Springfield and Mattis with that silly furniture sign? What about that message there? Huh? You know what I'm talking about. And I haven't even discussed our face-to-face interactions and the messages that we receive uh, at work with our colleagues or with our boss or those messages that are coming our way. And then when we get home, it's message, message, message. We're getting messages all day from home, boss, work groups, colleagues, Messages that are influencing and lobbying us. Surely Paul Tripp was right when he said, you're always being bombarded by the opinions of others. The world around you is not silent. You live in the middle of a constant cacophony of of interpretations of reality, whether it's the opinion of a friend, the lyrics of a song, words of a text, article from a newspaper, plot of a sitcom, some information on a website, worldview of a great movie. Your eyes are receiving, your mind is being influenced by a thousand voices every day. And each voice is telling you uh, how to think, and in telling you how to think, they're telling you how to live. They want you to speed up, slow down, spend more, save less, act this way, speak this way, make decisions this way their way their way or the highway we're not living in a neutral world here we're always always being influenced by the myriad of cultural and uh, familial messages that are coming our way including the message that hopefully we're hearing this morning see yet another message trying to from God trying to cut through all the messages from the world. In some ways, it hasn't changed from 2,000 years ago. It hasn't. 2,000 years ago, 
Our scripture verses were first heard by Christians like ourselves, but Christians in house churches that made up the church of Ephesus, this ancient city of Ephesus. And my, what a glorious city it was. The ancient city of Ephesus, which is now on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. The Bible uh, uh, identifies it as Asia Minor. Ephesus was a city of over 200,000. I mean, that was a major city. Over uh, twice as large as our community. I mean, it was huge. It was was the uh, leading city of the wealthiest province of the Roman Empire. And it was a harbor city. And talk about technology. Uh, uh, Ships would just come up to, you know, just within the city limits of Ephesus because the Romans dredged a nearly two-mile harbor from the city to the ocean. (laughs) 2,000 years ago, dredging a a, a two-mile harbor that ships would just come right on up to. It was amazing. And you can go to Ephesus today. You can if you go to Turkey. You can see. You can walk down Curita Street, uh, as Sarah and I got the opportunity to do a couple of years ago when we went to Turkey. And that's the main street. And there uh, to the left of the street is, uh, these are some upscale sidewalks in Ephesus. My goodness. And homes would be uh, uh, to the left of those sidewalks. They're, they're kind of, it's just one huge archaeological dig. And in fact, um, Homes uh, have been discovered, and that's what's underneath uh, these shelters here. Homes of kind of the, that's another uh, shot of Curita Street from, uh, from the top of a hill there. But homes have been, uh, of, the, of, of kind of the lifestyle of the Ephesian rich and famous, are underneath uh, that shelter that you see there. And this is how the wealthiest lived in Ephesus. And it's incredible the way their homes were. Look at that. It's a, kind of a mosaic floor. It's amazing. And then, uh, check this out. Uh, you know what that is? That is technology. That's hot water system. 2,000 years ago, it was an amazing, amazing city. And um, if you go uh, you, at the top of where those terraced houses are, you can overlook on the left side of your screen is a huge marketplace. And, and it was kind of like an outdoor mall area where the merchants would buy and sell all sorts of merchants and goods and uh, customers would come. And it was a commercial place and a social place. And, and then on the upper right-hand part of your screen, about 2 o'clock, you can see this magnificent uh, uh, amphitheater that existed in the first century. And uh, it, uh, part of it has been restored. And uh, 25,000 people uh, could uh, uh, be seated in that amphitheater. And uh, it was it's such a magnificent sight. It was the place where the Apostle Paul was uh, almost dragged into and almost, uh, he was almost mobbed by thousands of angry people over an incident in Acts chapter 19. Uh, in about the year A.D. 52, the Apostle Paul with a, a, a godly Christian couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they came to Ephesus and the gospel was preached. And what an amazing, amazing uh, 
thing that God did. Acts chapter 19 verse 11 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. And, and, and the Bible says in Acts 19 how he, he uh, uh, persuasively preached the kingdom of God. And he was, after he was run out of a synagogue, he went to a, a, a lecture hall of Tyrannus and preached the gospel and persuasively proclaimed Christ as the Messiah. And in verse 20 of Acts 19, it says that the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And that's where Paul got in trouble because of this temple right here. That is uh, artist's conception of the temple of Artemis. It's been called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 422 feet long, uh, 222 feet wide, 127 pillars, each 60 feet high, and 36 of those pillars inside encrusted with gold and, and jewelry. And this temple housed the idol Artemis, which was the greatest idol in Ephesus. Ephesus was a highly religious uh, uh, culture. Uh, and the Romans wouldn't know what to do with secular humanism and atheism. They just, wouldn't, they just wouldn't get that. Practically everything in Roman culture in first century Ephesus, whether it's work or play or food or drink or marriage or, or, or uh, single or sex or money, all of it was tied to some idol, some deity. And these temples generated an entire economy that was fiercely protected. And so when the Apostle Paul began preaching fiercely Jesus Christ, a God in the flesh who lived and who died and who reigns over all and above all and through all. My goodness, well, you know, I mean, this can get you in trouble, and it did. Paul was almost dismembered through this mob, and he ended up leaving Ephesus after two and a half years, and he wrote them a letter years later. Right around the year A.D. 62, the Apostle Paul wrote the words that we read here in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. And what I want to know is, why did he begin this way? Why did he begin this way? Huh? Well, think about it. Think about what we've just said. Think about the messages that we receive every day and the messages that were received in Ephesus toward Christians. They say, now, now, who is it you worship? We worship Jesus. Well, where's your temple? Well, we don't have one. You don't have a temple. Well, actually, we are the temple. What? See, that, that's foreign. See, that's, that, that would be foreign. Well, and this Jesus, now, you think he's the only God? You, you just don't think he's one of the paths to, you know, the, the heavenlies? What? How could you be so narrow? And, 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 where, and where are your idols, by the way? Where are your statues? What? And, and, oh, and by the way, why are you so racially diverse? I mean, what, you know, you've got Hebrews and Greeks together, and that's just not how we do things in first century Ephesus, you see. And you've got, you've got a culture that is entrenched with how they do life 
And those messages, those cultural messages clogged every imaginable inbox in the minds of the Ephesian Christians. So much so that after time, it felt like every day was an away game. Every day, an away game. You know? You just, you know, don't you? Every day in a way. I mean, it just wears on you. And, 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 and you know, where, whether it's terrorist threats or uncertainty about the economy or health issues or a financial meltdowns, I mean, the exhaustion uh, comes from the uncertainty and the fatigue becomes fear. And we wonder after a while, I mean, okay, well, who's manning the ship? Who's in charge? Does God have a plan? Are we on our own? And it feels like an away game. It feels like an away game. And my question is this. What do people, what do believers who feel like life is an away game, what do they need most? And these verses tell us. They tell us we need prayer. Prayer, that's what we need. We need prayer that re-energizes our spirits, prayer that resets our thinking, and prayer that reminds us of who God is and who we are and why we're here and where this life is going. We need, and not just any prayer, we need people who live in an away game need home game prayer. That's what they need. We need a home game prayer. Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, is a home game prayer. It is. It's a beautiful, it it is a prayer, you know. It's a home game prayer in an away game world. And what we have here, after Paul introduces himself in verse 1, addresses the recipients, gives them a grace and peace salutation, What we have here in verses 3 to 14 is a one-sentence, 201-word, monstrous, run-on, long sentence. In the original, the New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek. And in the Greek, from praise, in verse 3, to glory, in verse 14, is just one sentence. And it's a doozy. It's both a sermon and a prayer. It's a sermon to be prayed. It's a prayer to be preached. It's doxology. It's praise. It's worship. Because to worship is to know who owns the house. Prayer. Uh, The Hebrew scholars would call it a baraka. An explosion of worshipful praise to God for his blessings. And actually, verse 3 summarizes the entire section. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the the summary. 
And, and can, do you hear the Trinity there? Literally, verse 3, when it says spiritual blessing, literally that is every blessing pertaining to the Spirit. So Father, Son, and Spirit are in verse 3. And Paul takes these Christians in first century Ephesus, Christians who are feeling crammed like sardines in a city of a quarter of a million, and their minds are clogged uh, by all of the messages they're getting, and Paul just Paul just unjams the clog, and, he, and, and he, he, he expands their minds. He says, look, brothers and sisters, this world is bigger than the one you can see. There is the three-in-one God who is at work doing for us what we cannot do ourselves. Each person in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is at work creating a new people, a new people, a people that God has called to be holy and blameless in His sight. And what I want to do in our remaining time is just to take a look at what each person in the Trinity is doing, beginning with God the Father. Well, it's easy to see what God the Father is doing. Verse 3 says, God blessed. Verse 4, God chose. Verse 5, God predestined. Verse 6, God has freely given Verse 8, he's lavished. He's more than just freely given. He's lavish. He didn't dab. He lavished. Verse 9, God made known. And verse 10, God is bringing together. One pastor and author, Eugene Peterson, calls these seven verbs, he calls them verbal rockets. Seven verbs, each detonated by God. Verbs that get things done. Verbs that fill the sky and light up the earth. And what's the point behind these verbs? The point is that God has a plan. And his plan has been thought through carefully and completely. And God's plan is going to get. The point is that God is a closer. That's the point. He gets things done, period. And two verbs that highlight this most to me are the verbs God chose and God predestined. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Think about this, church family. The matter of you becoming a Christian and belonging to God existed before God said, let there be light. Just as God determined to set apart for himself, to choose, to elect a people and call that people Israel, God has elected to call a spiritual Israel, a people of his very own, the church of the living God, comprised of all nations and races and languages. And years later, the Ephesian Christians would hear uh, similar words from the Apostle John in Revelation 1.6, where it says, we have been created to be a kingdom and priests to serve God the Father. And all of this was decided by God before creation. Do you get that? Before Genesis 1-1, God the Father elected God the Son to be the Savior of the world, not Augustus. And those who choose Him are chosen. You see. I, I like how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, we are in on the action long before we have any idea that we are in on the action. Look, 
Our God is an awesome God. He knows everything. He can do anything. There's nothing he can't do. There's no place where he's not. Our all-knowing, almighty, all-present God. And the verbs he chose and he predestined. Listen here now. These, these were not, listen, these were not written by Paul to Ephesians who are already getting bombarded with cultural messages that they weren't written by Paul to Ephesus to serve notice that, you know, some are in and some are out. See, the two groups here are not who's in and who's out. Rather, the two groups consist of, number one, those whom God is transforming by his love, and number two, those whom the first group is sent to embody God's love. And God's election of a, of a people for his very own is intended to encourage us that no matter how chaotic and uncertain or crazy or unpredictable life is, God has a plan and he has not strayed from that plan, nor will he. He will not abandon his people. And what a relief that is to those in the first century who once pursued astrology for their assurance. Those who once practiced magic arts and the the paying of hard-earned money to magicians to break a bad spell. Paul says in Ephesians that, that election says that my life does not depend on some capricious and hostile spirit. My life is in the hands of the one true God who is at work through the cross and the resurrection, transforming and making this life meaningful, giving purpose. And that assurance is true for us today because some of us came in this room, this room asking questions like, you know, is my heavenly father still here? You know, with the week that I've had, does he still want me to win? Has my past turned him away? And Ephesians 1 gives us this home game prayer. The answer is, I chose you. I elect you. You belong to me. Election is about assurance, which leads to humility, and it always results in holiness. That's why this is a home game prayer in an away game world. And when you pray this prayer, you are anchoring your soul to the sovereign God who is over and above all of the moody and wishy-washy, capricious idols of Ephesus and America. Well, that's what God the Father's doing. What about God the Son? What is he doing? I mean, how did God the Father win this election for us? And verse 7 tells us, in him, that is Jesus, we have redemption. Now, that's a huge word. Huge word. Redemption. Redemption implies that a rupture has occurred. Redemption implies that the world is broken. Our sin is so deep. Evil is so prevalent. In fact, we've become accomplices and willing ones at that. You know, uh, Abraham Kuyper, he was once the prime minister of the Netherlands. And um, this is what he said uh, years and years ago. And it's so relevant for today. He He said, the conflict today is not between faith and science. It's not. You know, the people talk about the battle between faith and science. That's, 
That's a smokescreen. The conflict today is rather between the assertion that the world as it exists exists today is either normal or abnormal. And if you think it's normal, then you're going to buy into the notion that it's evolving forever and ever to its ideal state. But if you think it's abnormal, which is what biblical Christianity holds, if you think it's abnormal, then, you know, then a disturbance has occurred in the past. And only a regenerating power can transform and redeem it. And what Paul says here is that Christ's violent death has achieved redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why the phrase, in Christ, do you see that there? The phrase, in Christ, it's really the most important phrase of the entire paragraph, of the entire prayer. I mean, it's all over. Verse 1, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, 11, 12, 13. In Christ. What does in Christ mean? It means that whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. That's what that means. The king represents the people. What's true of Jesus is true of us. In the Old Testament, you remember when David fought Goliath? David represented Israel. David won, the Israelites won. Well, Jesus is the true David. And all that is true of him is true of us. And so to be in him is that God sees us as he sees his son. To be in Christ means that you know, we hurt for this broken world like the son hurts for this broken world. To be in Christ means that There will be times when we suffer just as the Son suffered. Don't expect the world to treat us any differently than the world treated the Son. And to be in Christ means that Resurrection Sunday is not just for Jesus. To be in Christ means that His rising is our rising. And to be in Christ means that we are privy to God the Father's Thy Kingdom Come project. You know that Jesus is God the Father's thy kingdom come project. That's why verse 10 says to bring all things, all things. You know what you want to know what the you want to know what our destiny is? Verse 10 is our destiny. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ. That's that's the end of the game. That's it. You don't have to wait till the last 30 seconds to see who's going to win. We can know right now. All things in heaven and earth are going to be brought under Christ. God's in the process of doing this. this. This notion that heaven is out there and someday we'll get there, but in the meantime, we're going to get to do what we want. That's not biblical. Heaven's not out there. God is in the process of bringing heaven to earth. In, in the book of Revelation, it's the new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven to the, the new heavens and the new earth. Now the dwelling of God is with man. Do you know what, I, do you know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that Narnia is real. That's what I'm saying. And our gathering here, right here, right now, is is in Christ, is a taste of the ultimate gathering when all of heaven and all of earth 
we'll be gathered together and then subject to Him. And to, so to be in Christ is to unite us together as a community. And if you want to know the fastest way to kill a local church, you make it about anything else other than in Christ. Anything else. Unchrist-like doctrine or a pastor's personality or anything else. That You want to talk about crashing and burning? Is there any real reason why we have to gather here or to go out like we did last weekend if it weren't for us being in Christ? The way to be gathered together is to be gathered together by Him and to Him. And when we all press to the center where He is, guess what? We grow closer together. We all press to one another. And when we passionately pursue fellowship with Christ and knowledge of Christ and trust in Christ and adoration of Christ, service to Christ and likeness to Christ, we become this life-changing community because Jesus is life-changing. That's what God the Son does. God the Father, God the Son. And then Paul shares with us what God the Holy Spirit is doing. And that's in verse 13. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What's a seal? A seal in the first century is a sign of ownership. History tells us that that all valuable objects were marked And the promised Holy Spirit has marked you as His. You belong to Christ, the Spirit says. And verse 13 says, you also. Do you see that? You also. So the we gets changed to you. Why? Because Paul is not only talking to believers from the Hebrew race. He's talking to believers from a Greek and Gentile race. He's telling this racially diverse church of house churches that in Christ, God's plan was to create a new race, a new humanity from every race, a redeemed community, one whose identity is not wrapped up in Roman politics or the Greek games or Ephesian idolatry, but rather their identity is solely in Christ. And the Holy Spirit who resides in us, who are in Christ, that Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing guaranteeing what's to come. And and, and it's not just a promise for the future. It's a taste of the future now. Now. And that's exactly what we experienced last week at Weekend of Service. You you don't think we're going to be lounging on lazy boy clouds strumming harps forever in heaven, do you? What's up with that? No. No. In Christ, marked by the Spirit, who is our down payment, we've been given a new identity to explore and to live out. And in the new heavens and the new earth, in new bodies, we are going to all worship and serve forever together. And the difference between now and then is that then we're going to do what we've been doing in redeemed bodies, new bodies, sinless bodies, no evil. All of our motives will be pure and we will never ever tire and I I gotta tell you I got a taste of that this past weekend I want to be careful how I say what I'm going to say when I put my head on the pillow last Sunday night before I went to sleep 
I, I thought about this weekend, and, and I thought, you know, Lord, I, Lord I, I, I don't think I sinned all weekend. <laughs> you know? Oh, I, mean, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe we should confirm that with Sarah. No, don't, please. That's not <laughs> Let's, let's enjoy this pleasant fiction for a while, okay? But I mean, just, you know, I mean, you, be, you know, you, when you're serving in the Spirit, you're not going to be feeding the flesh. And that's what we did last weekend, you see? That's what we did. And one day, our lives will be as C.S. Lewis concludes in the last battle, now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and one in which each chapter is better than the one before. It's a home game prayer, all right. I'll tell you that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit at work blessing us by creating a holy and blameless people for himself. Something, something he decided to do before time began. What a prayer, what a prayer. To worship is to know who owns the house. And to clasp our hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Oh, I'm going to show you a slide that I didn't talk about, Jeff. Let's put the Temple of Artemis back up there. Next slide. Next slide. That's what's left of Artemis. But the Temple of the Living God is still standing. Because we are standing on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who stand on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And all of this to the praise of his glory. Did you notice that in verses 6 and 12 and 14? That repeated phrase, to the praise of his glory. The purpose of life is to the praise of his glory. And this is where the message of Ephesians collides head on with both their world and our world. A world that demands that we live to the praise of its glory. The glory of consumption, the glory of the economy, the glory of the firm, the glory of the team. And when we live for the glory of an idol, our lives, as uh, um, Augustine of old once said, when we live for the glory of an idol, our lives curve in on ourselves. We, We develop a scoliosis, of the spine spiritually that turns us inward. But the gospel of Jesus Christ who redeems us and adopts us, he whose own spine was twisted on that tree, he has straightened our spines in his resurrection. And now we can see, and now we can look out, and now we can look up and live to the praise of his glory because he has become our identity. We are in Christ. He becomes greater and we become lesser. Oh, church family, Pray this prayer. It's a home game prayer. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to practice this here 
as we receive communion now. Communion is our weekly opportunity to corporately pray this home game prayer that through the symbols of the loaf and the cup, through Christ's death and burial and resurrection, by grace through faith, we belong to the community of God so that we might live for the glory of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me?